Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood and welcome to Faith and Family. We have a special broadcast today in light of just celebrating Christmas, the birth of the Prince of Peace. And right ahead of us is the World Day of Peace, January 1st, which is the feast day in the Catholic Church that was instituted in 1967. Just by way of a hint, if you want to do something special in your family on the World Day of Peace, there's an old movie, and if you do a search on the internet, like uh, YouTube or someplace, you'll find an older movie about 34 minutes long entitled Truce in the Forest, and it's based on a true story. There were some American GIs, with one of them being wounded, came to, I believe it was a German woman's home, and she received them on Christmas Eve, and then a little while later, some German soldiers came with guns ready to go blazing into her home, and this woman had a real backbone, and she said, no, this is Christmas Eve, and she cited, you know, the Christ, the Prince of Peace, and and they had a truce in the forest during the celebration of the birth of the Prince of Peace. The angels were singing to the shepherds. We read in Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. In Psalm 72, a messianic psalm, it says, in his days may righteousness flourish and peace abound. And I'll just draw a little line connecting the two parts of that verse. Righteousness and peace are connected. In his days may righteousness flourish and peace abound. And you might say, well, what happens if righteousness doesn't flourish? I think you can figure that one out. The prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, for us, to us, a child is born, the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Here's my major premise for this broadcast, and it's this. To the degree that the nations of the world place their governments under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be peace. But conversely, humanitarian attempts at world peace will fail. And this is my personal opinion, but I would give it close to a 100% guarantee that the humanitarian attempts at peace, apart from Christ, are not going to work. And even in our individual lives, part of the Beatitudes, the, the whole outlook and lifestyle for those in Christ's kingdom, says in Matthew 5 and verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called 
the sons of God. A characteristic of a Christian is a peacemaker. Now, every now and then, I have to step on a toe, okay? And there is a weakness in committed Christians, both Protestant and Catholic. Ironically, those who follow the Prince of Peace, who are called to be peacemakers, are frequently among those who favor involvement in various foreign wars. Uh, Some would call it interventionist wars. And it's an irony because most conservatives are against big government, but war always, and I mean always, increases the size of government and government spending. And yet the conservative news channels, with a few exceptions of hosts, are seem to be always building up the case to bomb somebody. And I'm not saying we don't have national defense, but the outlook of a Christian should be guided by peace. I'm not saying that that should eliminate defense, but it should color our outlook. And these are serious things because we're living in a day where things are are changing. Um, In the news, I don't know if you're aware, just the last few years, the whole concept of preemptive war is being accepted by some. In other words, we have to go to war against a country or countries in order to prevent the possibility of another war in the future. And this is accepted by many leaders in the modern world, even the Western world. And yet, preemptive war, according to St. John Paul II and Benedict XVI, is an unjust war. Um, There are talks right now about a limited nuclear war with China or Russia. In other words, if things kind of got out of hand in a conflict with either of those two nations, we would use low-yield nuclear weapons. But Someone has asked, is there really such a thing as a limited nuclear war? Once nations start shooting off nuclear missiles, where does it stop? Um, You know, I'm thinking back to the Civil War. A lot of folks thought it would last a week. It was just a endless tragedy that no one thought could erupt. I'm talking about on our own soil. I just personally think that a limited nuclear war will not be limited. If you're fighting a nuclear war, you might as well face the facts, okay? Uh, Today, there's about 14,500 nuclear weapons in the world. That's an estimate because everybody tries to keep that kind of secret. But one of the things we just saw in our headlines over the past year is that we now have hypersonic nuclear missiles capable of traveling, we don't know quite how fast, but at least 5,000 to 6,000 miles per hour to anywhere in the globe. They can vary in their uh, trajectory, so they're hard to shoot down because of their speed and angle of assault. So uh, 
we need to be careful. I'm assuming many of you would describe yourselves as conservatives. So often, the conservative news networks bring on a general and tells us that we it just have to, for American interest, have to go bomb somebody. And I think we really need to evaluate from the perspective of the Gospels and what Jesus came to do, what we should do in response to threats against our country. Now, on the other end of things, in other words, I'm claiming, and I think I'm on pretty solid ground because once you're aware of this, you start to see it a whole lot. In fact, for some reason, I'm laughing out of nervousness. Uh, some of our political leaders from South Carolina are some um, amongst the worst. And they're otherwise good people. They're pro-life and for good things. And yet, they're some of the biggest advocates of going to war against this or that nation of our representatives in Washington, D.C. So, in any case, that's one side of things. But there's another side of things, and these are Christians who strongly desire peace. And I affirm that, and I'm nobody, but Jesus Christ is somebody, and he is the Prince of Peace. He's an advocate of peace. He came to bring peace. And so Christians who strongly desire peace and recognize its priority will often advocate unilateral disarmament. In other words, just saying, say, leaders, Christian leaders in our country saying, just disarm. Uh, who cares what China does or North Korea or Iran or Russia or whatever else? And they want to dismantle most of our military, um, dismantle our missile systems. And to many, this seems highly unrealistic in a still fallen world. I mean, you take it on a local level. And again, this past year, we lived through a situation where some very large cities want to get rid of their police force. Now, that's a really stupid thing because sin hasn't been erased from the globe yet. And some people will take action unjustly against others, including violent action, and we need a, bit, a buffer between them. The same thing could be taken from your local level to your national and international level. If you just unilaterally disarm, which is commendable, don't get me wrong, the seeking peace is great, but it would be like canceling your police force. I think they did that in Minneapolis or someplace up in the upper Midwest, and uh, they changed their minds rather rapidly because that wasn't working out. So what do you do? And again, I think you have Christians on two poles. Uh, again, the one group a little too anxious to start dropping bombs on other nations halfway around the world. And the other hand, those who want to do away with our military or most of our military forces altogether. I'd like to advocate on this World Day of Peace coming up 
on behalf of the Prince of Peace, advocate a third way, somewhere between unilateral disarmament and the constant involvement in foreign wars and runaway military budgets. And what I would advocate, I'm terming in two words, armed neutrality. And this isn't something that I cooked up by myself. No, this is from a real-life example in a real nation that has done this successfully, and it all came from a Catholic saint, so stay with me. The real-life example of a nation doing this is Switzerland. And what Switzerland did in World War II, it was the only nation in Europe that wasn't invaded by the Nazis. I'm going to explain why in a moment. And it was because of their armed neutrality. They weren't going to threaten anyone, but if they were threatened, they would respond. It was an armed neutrality. It's not the two extremes. And what I would advocate you could adapt the situation in Switzerland to the contemporary U.S. needs as well as specific policies and such. There's a fascinating book. I, I don't know if it's still in print, but you can get it used. The title is Target Switzerland by Stephen Halbrook. And he describes the history of Swiss defense. Now, I imagine the Swiss, you know, you think of them in your mind, the kind of laid-back folks uh, preoccupied with making fine chocolate, cheese, and precision watches. And yet, they are a tough bunch. One-tenth of the entire Swiss population is under arms. Now, it's not necessarily a full-time army. They have their weapons to fight with to defend their country in their homes. There's a closet for your military weapons. And during World War II, it increased to one out of five of the Swiss population was under arms. And that auxiliary was made up of women, teens, and, and older men, along with the regular army. Now, the Swiss aren't going to invade anyone. They have sworn to neutrality. But if they're invaded, the Swiss will fight to the death. They, they don't fight to a stalemate. They fight to the death. And their soldiers are commanded to fight until they have shot their last bullet, literally. And if they run out of bullets, they're supposed to put on a bayonet and continue fighting. They never are allowed to stop. Secondly, the Swiss were told that if the Nazis invaded, they would not surrender under any condition, and that the president of Switzerland had absolutely no authority to surrender the nation. You remember all the other nations of Europe, some even surrendered without hardly firing a shot. Well, the Swiss were dead opposite, you see. Radical neutrality, but radical armed defense. And that it was publicized not only across the nation, but in newspapers around the world that the Swiss would not surrender and that no government official has the authority to surrender the nation if they were invaded. And so this was, this was, 
This was something entirely different. And by the way, that book I mentioned, Target Switzerland, it shows multiple invasion plans that the Nazis had for Switzerland. But when they run up against armed neutrality, they didn't attack. And one of the things in Switzerland, this might surprise you, but a lot of people bring their guns to church because after church, and again, this isn't the Wild West like maybe too many Americans are like, they have shooting clubs. Uh, it was target shooting to try to outdo each other at long distance target shooting. And they have regional, national shooting competitions. And the last I saw that uh, Switzerland had over 3,600 rifle clubs and their soldiers were taught to shoot only if the target could be hit to pause after each shot and observe. Now, the German soldiers, the Nazis, were trained to shoot at 100 meters, okay? It's hard to shoot at that distance. You see stuff on movies, it's much harder than what it looks. But the Swiss were trained at a standard of 300 meters. And there was a kind of a, uh, what should I say, half comical postcard depicting a Swiss military man being asked by a German, what in the world did the Swiss expect to do with only a million soldiers if they were invaded by a half million Germans? And the Swiss soldier says, shoot twice. Uh, they would never get near them. And uh, in Switzerland to this day, their bridges are mined. There's anti-aircraft batteries in barns. The roof pulls back and there's anti-aircraft guns and all this type of thing. But here's what's really interesting to me. And ask the question, where did the Swiss get all this? Because it seems that this is different from basically every other nation on the planet. Because uh, yes, you have nations in World War II showed this who just, just surrendered with a whimper. And you had somebody like the Swiss never got invaded because of their armed neutrality. Well, where did it come from? Well, you have to go back all the way to the year 1481. And there was a Catholic monk by the name of St. Nicholas of Flu, affectionately known by the Swiss as Brother Kloss. And he advocated as a Catholic monk a policy of neutrality, and he didn't want false reasons to go launching into a war. He himself, earlier in life, I believe he was a captain. He had served his military service, but he condemned as immoral wars of aggression and any time there was a slaughter of noncombatants. Now, he was a family man. He had 10 children. I'm, I'm told that his descendants are, are still living in Switzerland today. But towards the end of his life, he became a hermit. And the last 19 years of his life, he survived in a, a little cabin or a hut, so to speak, and only eating or surviving for 19 years on the Eucharist alone. 
rather unique individual. He didn't go anywhere to promote his views. People came to him out in his remote hut, and kings came, leaders of various nations came, all kinds of people came to him to hear his advice and his wisdom. And the Swiss, the Swiss aren't angels. They were ready back in St. Nicholas of Flu's day. They were ready to tear themselves apart, the different cantons of, of the Swiss. They wanted to have their civil war, and he gave them wisdom on why not to do it, how to calm the situation down. And it's very interesting this Catholic saint, he's honored by Swiss Protestants, and he was made a saint by Pope Clement IX in 1667. Excuse me. He was venerated, but in 47, 1947, he was canonized by Pope Pius XII. So this is something that we could think of for our day and you think, well, it would never work in our world. Well, not exactly, because obviously technology has changed. Intercontinental ballistic missiles, which that means missiles that go across the oceans, and you know, it's different from just having a, uh, an isolated border to protect. But there are ways, there are ways to develop the very best armed defense in the world and yet, at the same time, exercise armed neutrality. And, you know, this, you might say, this all sounds very un-American to me, Steve. Well, President John Adams, our second president, said that the Swiss example of a well-armed neutrality is something that would be very favorable to the United States. Patrick Henry, obviously not afraid of a good fight, he praised the 500-year history of Switzerland. And even the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution is reflecting the Swiss influence when it says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And you put this in the Swiss context. Now, I don't know if the Swiss are all shooting each other like Americans tend to do. Too many Americans tend to do. I have read that it's not guns. It was the introduction of television that actually saw the increase of the misuse of weapons. Children back in the day... Uh, could bring a 22 to school and go hunting after school. Uh, I have the original Boy Scout handbook, and for $25, you could get a Remington 22 sent to you in the mail. Um, today, you'd be put in a federal prison. Something has changed in the culture, but the idea of armed neutrality, where you have a widespread defensive system within a country and taking the necessary steps to defend the country from attack from others, this would be something that the United States could greatly use. And you're talking about a fine balance. It's, it's a balance um, 
that I, I see has escaped us in the United States. We have religious folks who are dead set on increasing our military budgets to go fight anywhere somebody on a conservative TV network persuades us to go fight. On the other hand, you have religious leaders say we should just unilaterally disarm everything and and there's not a whole lot of middle ground there. And I don't mean a diluted middle ground. I'm talking about a successful middle ground that balances Christ's command to be peacemakers, but yet do so in the context of the reality in the world in which we live. And you don't have to be a prophet to know that there are a number of flashpoints right now in the world. Um, We read continually Russia and China, which I do think that both are threats, although Russia is blamed for just about everything, including the outcome of elections and uh, cybersecurity attacks and everything else. I don't know who they're coming from, but uh, Russia's a threat, China's a threat, and there are threats in the Middle East. And I think some of the threats that we don't acknowledge stem from a certain prophetic outlook that sees the nation Israel, after a supposed rapture takes place, becomes the expression of the kingdom of God. And reading the Old Testament scriptures, the prophetic sections, the fulfillment will be on the nation Israel after their supposed rapture and things were a little rough and ready back then, they're ready to start going and bomb countries in the Middle East based upon a highly defective view of biblical prophecy. And some of the lineups, the Republican lineups for President of the United States have gone over to the Middle East with the most defective rapture teachers in the United States to Israel. And we need to have our prophecy right, our view of the church right, because some of these prophecy teachers who believe in the rapture also think that the Catholic Church is the great whore of Babylon and that any defensive or offensive steps we take as a country is righteous. And we need to learn from the Swiss for the sake of our children for the sake of our grandchildren, and for the sake of all of us growing up in an age with a rekindled nuclear threat. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 369 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.